Okay, welcome Hank and welcome everybody else for joining us today. Thanks for taking the time to um, come on today's webinar. Um, we're going to be discussing franchising small businesses and the law with our very special guest, Mr. Hank Spear, as our legal specialist. We've got about half an hour, so I'm going to kick off with a bit of an introduction to Hank. But before we do that, if you have any questions for Hank during the webinar, please put them in the Q&A section. Um, there's a button for it below and we'll um, try and answer as many of these questions as we can further on in the webinar. So for everyone's listening benefit, Hank is a former CEO of the ACCC and a long-time legal practitioner with a keen interest in competition law and small businesses, and he's a regular contributor to the Law Council SME Committee. Hank's been advising industry associations like Auna for many years, um, small business owners and other peak bodies. Uh, this covers competition and general law matters, including areas like general contract law, unfair contract terms, franchising law, and also issues like collective bargaining, misleading and deceptive conduct, misuse of market power, and other issues like third line forcing and retail price maintenance. Hank's experience and expertise has really helped us at AUNA to develop our skills and understanding of these issues and to put these clearly in the submissions that we make on behalf of members, particularly to the ACCC when we get consulted on mergers and authorizations. And this really helps us as an association to better advise uh, you are members on these issues. Hank also looks after some individual member issues to provide base level triage and advice on, on issues where members are in trouble with the law to help them understand what they should do. And then he can also provide his services directly to members and an additional cost where required. So welcome Hank and thank you for giving us some of your valuable time to have a chat today. Um, I know we've talked at length before about some of the common pitfalls small business owners make when it comes to the law and their contracts in particular. I was going to spend a good part of today's session on that issue and then to look at some other issues I know members will be interested in like common franchising issues and questions we get asked regularly about fairness and whether some things are misuses of market power or just hard bargaining and contracts. So to kick off uh, question one was um, to help our listeners is what are some of the most common pitfalls you see small business owners and our members falling into with the law and why? Well, thanks, Ben. And also uh, thanks for all the elder members who are, who are, who, who are involved uh, in the seminar workshop. Yeah. Um, look, I get, I get regular queries from Alna members about various issues. And by the way, as Ben says, I also represent other small business groups and I get similar queries. The two most common ones I get, and which seems to be issues, one is contracts and people have entered into contracts that um, they either don't understand or at times shouldn't have entered into at all because the product that they've been talked into buying is not something they need. Contracts are a, are a messy issue. And I'll come back to that in a minute. The other issue that is very common and everyone will put their hand up and say, yeah, is that they complain about, about competition from bigger players. Now the law doesn't protect a competitor as such the law protects competition. Now, there's a fine line between the two, but there is an important difference, and maybe we will come back to that. On the issue of contracts, people have always assumed that you know, if you sign a contract, well, you're stuffed. You've signed it, 
and you have to live with it. There's a little bit of truth in that, but the law over years has changed. But still, it's better to seek advice on contracts than try to fix things after, after the event. Since November of 2016, small businesses have been have had the protection of what's called the unfair contract terms law. To me, it's the most important piece of law that protects small business that has happened in, in many decades, because it means that uh, if, if there's unfair terms, terms that are really unfair in, in the circumstances, uh, they can, it protects the small business if later those terms are used, or you can maybe undo the whole contract later if you say, well, look, these terms are simply unfair. What's unfair is still evolving, but the yeah, was... issues are termination, uh, breach, uh, if you know they breach, or, or they take away your legal rights, uh, various things like that, which many of you will say, well, that's what, what's in my contracts. Having said all that, and Ben will come up with something else in a minute, you know, look, when you're asked to sign a, a contract, really, you need to read it. Um, some are so complicated and boring that, you know, you, you probably need to seek advice. And advice at the early stage is better, probably better than a, a problem later. Advice from a lawyer, you know, you don't go to the big legal firms, but from a local lawyer shouldn't cost that much. And it's, it's worth it rather than to undo things later and have a fight with a player who's much bigger than you, you, you might win the fight, but it's going to be nasty. Hmm. Now, thanks for that. And I know um, you and I have done a lot of work on unfair contract terms protections over the years, and uh, that's been important to make sure that those protections are available to our, our members with um, the majority of their contracts. And um, I suppose just digging a little bit deeper, um, what are some examples of, uh, of um, what um, an unfair contract term looks like and, and are there any penalties for using them? Um, and what can a small business owner actually do if a contract has an unfair term or they think it's got an unfair term? Well, if, if they think it's got an unfair term and of course unfair can mean all kinds of things, but you have to look at it uh, uh, in the circumstances. I mean, they can, if they, if they think a term's unfair, yeah. um, go and see a lawyer, a, a, a complaint to Ben, who'll flick it on to me, uh, or generally uh, see what you can do about it. Talk to the person who the contract, you know, the other, the other party, they may be prepared to change the contract. But particularly issues, I'll give you one particular issue, which is common, and that's a, and that's a rollover, where you enter into a contract and it says you, know, you sign up for a year, but then in the contract terms, there's also, if you don't uh, terminate the contract or give notice of termination three months beforehand, written termination, written, then it rolls over for another two or three years. Now, in, in that has in many instances been, been deemed to be simply unfair. That's really what interesting because theory... actually... I actually already had a question from a member that I was going to ask you later um, on exactly that, on, on that issue of, you know, entering into a contract for, say, 12 months 
and then not realizing that if you um if you didn't give notice um so making the assumption that if that contract just ran its course that you that would be it and and not um understanding that you need to give notice in order to to close it off well it will depend upon the facts because what's unfair it depends upon the on the facts and a rollover look if it's if it's a rollover for say it's you've entered into a year contract and there's a further rollover for another year whether that's unfair is arguable and frankly i would argue it's unfair if i was arguing on behalf of what of Alna member but it's arguable whether that's unfair particularly if the contract wasn't too complicated and it was quite clear that there was this rollover. But if the rollovers for two, three, four years, I mean, ones we looked at some years ago were on the ATM machines where the rollovers was something like three or four years. Mm. Now that's fundamentally, I mean, even, and the ACCC considered this too and said that was unfair. Uh, so unfair, you have to look at the facts one year, Nah, two or three is probably unfair but again had the if members read the contract or get someone to advise on the contract you 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 may not fall for that and have to fight later yeah now that's really helpful i might take a bit of a sort of step back now um just to ask what are some of the steps you'd recommend a small business owner take when they're presented with a new contract I know it, every contract's not the same. So should members approach differently, say their telco or utility contract compared with, uh, I suppose, a franchise agreement, a finance agreement, or uh, you know, their lease agreement, those really critical um, agreements that they might have in their businesses? It's a very hard question because people all have different needs and different understandings and, and various contracts differ. I would say if you're entering into a new contract, someone you haven't dealt with, definitely read it carefully, get advice. Franchise contracts are a mixed bag because of course the franchise code gives some protection as to what can or can't be in the agreement. But the franchise code doesn't set out the whole contract and there'll be bits in the franchise contract which, which may be unfair or which may simply people don't understand. So there's there's some protections in the franchise contract in the franchise law when it comes to utilities look they are to some extent regulated um, by by states and territories but even though they they regularly change and they often don't tell you almost every contract just be careful what you're signing particularly ask if you, if you had a long-term contract with a, with a utility and they ask you to sign a new one, ask them what the changes are. Are there any changes? And uh, they should tell you. Uh, and so then you can assess, well, well, I don't like the changes or look, let's face it, in many cases, you don't have much option. I mean, I'm in the ACT. There's one energy provider which, which provides the gas and the power. So the options are pretty, uh, pretty slim, and you can complain, but you'll get very, you'll get told, well, bad luck. So it depends upon the circumstance. But again, it means read the contracts, assess what you, uh, 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 what you're signing. Yeah, and I know you and I have talked before about some members sort of 
almost sign contracts unnecessarily, you know, fairly simple supply agreements where maybe is a contract even required? Um, do you think um, some members, you know, could negotiate with a supplier to say, well, do I really need a contract? Well, I think you can. Yeah, yeah, of course you can. And again, it depends upon the product. Uh, it depends upon whether you've dealt with, the, with them before. In many cases, I mean, I mean, contracts are not necessarily written. Yep. The written contracts tend to favour the, the the bigger player because they try to sort of nail down the customer. Uh, you, in my view, you should always try and negotiate. And in some cases, just don't don't sign a contract, but say, look, I'll buy I'll buy product from you as I need it. But you're not necessarily tied down. And the other very important issue is think whether some of the products you are thinking of buying and you're being, being convinced to buy by a salesperson, whether you need them. Many stuff you probably don't need. Or you don't need a contract. You don't need a regular supply. You just need a, to, to buy it for, from time to time. I mean, probably we all get probably emails about buying toner for um for printers now you can buy them just as you need but some of the emails offer an annual contract of supply well that to me seems a, a waste of time and money yep yep no, that's really helpful and the other question i was going to ask you is is what sort of advisors should small businesses have for example um you know almost well i'm pretty sure every one of our members has an accountant, but, you know, should they have a relationship with a local lawyer? Because, I mean, I suppose what we, we find is generally um, when we have legal issues with members, it's because they haven't either haven't read the contract before they've signed it or understood it. Um, is it worth having that relationship with a local lawyer to, um, to look at your contracts? Look, I think it is. With, but on the other hand, it, well, the answer is yes. But it also may depend on your accountant. Your accountant might be pretty smart and a bit of a bush lawyer. And they may be just as helpful uh, as a local lawyer. So you, you need to sort of test the situation. But, uh, you know, it's always good sense to just, I suppose, have a have a nodding acquaintance or something with a local, with a local lawyer. So if something, is needed, you can go to them. Uh, but the underlying issue is, in many cases, if you feel you don't understand something, go to a local lawyer or or your accountant. If the accountant's fairly smart, I mean, most yeah. accountants most accountants are bush lawyers. No, that's exactly right, and I think that's good advice. And it's it's probably good to have at least had a conversation with a local lawyer and and sort of be on their books, so to speak, and have an understanding of what their cost structure is, so that what you know when the time comes that you want that advice, you know what you're up for, and they know who you are. And look, it won't, it shouldn't cost that much. I mean, I can't say what what all lawyers charge, but some quick advice or like reading a contract shouldn't shouldn't cost that much if you get into issues like litigation and whatnot yeah well you know it'll yeah. cost obviously you try to avoid that oh, um yeah. I, I suppose just building on that another question i had is because like a lot of the contracts that our members get are standard form yep. um and i think there's a general assumption that you kind of can't negotiate um what are your views on that do you think that 
with standard form contracts um, that you, you know, if there's a clause here or there that you, you feel strongly about that you can negotiate? Well, look, I'd always try and negotiate. Whether you can is really up to um, the other party. And in many cases, you, know, you just can't negotiate. I always remember a discussion I had with a very large um, beer company who also owned hotels, probably pick who that is, and who also wanted a TV for, for the races, to get the races. And, and I went to them and said, are you able to negotiate on the contracts for the broadcasting of the horse races? And they just said, no, we can't, we tried. Yet they're one of the biggest companies in Australia. They had no option at all. So if they can't, others can't, but it's always worth a try. And yep. in some cases, look, it'll work. Yeah, and obviously, you know, Anna from time to time gets the opportunity to comment on on new contracts with with larger suppliers, and and certainly we do that with you. We get you to look through them, and we make our various comments. Um, and and you know, often those things are taken up, um, but generally speaking, um, you know, those larger contracts, um, are, are, you know, as you say, are fairly one-sided. So it's, um, it's important that, that members, you know, have read them and, and understand what they're actually, um, what they're agreeing to. I might move on to franchising now. Um, can you share with us what, what are some of the common themes and issues that members raise with you um, about their franchise agreements? Well, frankly, something what just talked about earlier, some unfair contract terms uh, is one of the um, one of the main issues. Yep. Uh, the other thing which I have a bit of my bonnet over, and it may be unfair, it may not, it hasn't been tested yet, is cost shifting. It seems to me the franchise agreements in many cases shift costs, you know, right. um, which to me is unfair. Uh, you're often not told up front, although the contract says it may happen, but it doesn't, they never sort of then tell you what may happen during, during the time of the franchise agreement. Uh, it's, it's those type of things that, again, it's a, the franchisor invariably will be in a much more powerful position than the franchisee. And the franchisor then seems to do what, what they like. Um, uh, uh, the other thing, of course, yeah, some, a lot of, I mean, the franchise, franchises that Alnum members would be involved with are prob probably pretty reasonable and pretty stable and pretty, um, uh, uh, well, not necessarily always fair, but uh, they're, they've got a reputation to keep. But I have had experience with news agents in the past where they entered into franchise agreements where there were crooks, simple crooks. Yeah. Um, and uh, again, it comes back to you really have to do your homework then. Don't just enter into a franchise agreement because you, you're talked into it. And people will say, yeah, but the franchise code has, gives me all this information about a franchise. And that's right. It gives you upfront. But with the crooks, the franchise law simply tells the crooks where to lie, where, yeah. where to tell porkies. You know, they can make up the turnover. They can make up this and that. They can make up all the advertising that they're going to be doing. But it's all—it's all just nonsense. And there's case after case where the franchises are just dodgy. The other hand, on the other hand, you have very big and powerful franchises, and they tend to 
to tend to sort of push the envelope a bit and push costs away from them uh, to, to the franchisee. Yep, yep. So just digging a bit deeper into um, franchising, um, you know, some of the issues that um, members raise with us um, are around, you know, their experiences of what's fair and reasonable with their agreements. Can you talk to us a bit about what, what is fair and reasonable from your um, standpoint with a, with franchising and, and what's just hard bargaining in a contract and, and what is meant by acting in good faith, for example, which is obviously a requirement of the franchising code now, um, or, or, or what might you consider to be a misuse of market power as an example? Okay. Um, Sorry, that's a very long question. No, it's a reasonable question. Look, what's fair and reasonable is going to be a question of fact uh, in any case. And again, it's, it's mixed up with unfair contract terms. Uh, it's mixed up with a whole lot of issues. There's a current active discussion. In fact, the annual meeting of the Law Council is on right now, virtual meeting. And one of the issues being discussed by the ACCC and pushed heavily by the ACCC is not just have unfair contract terms, but unfair unfair practices. Right. And they're really pushing this hard with the government uh, to, to, to allow, to, to amend the law to have unfair practices. And that is to some extent franchisors pushing the envelope too far, uh, other things like that. You, you mentioned misuse of market power. Um, now, the government wouldn't like to hear me say that, nor the ACCC, but the misuse of market power in the, in the law is of no use at, at all to small business because it says someone with a lot of market power cannot use that power to substantially lessen competition in a market in Australia. Substantially lessen competition is an unbelievably hard issue to prove, and it's not... It's, it's again, it's competition in a market and not for a, a competitor. So if you think you're being screwed by someone big it, and it's hurting you and it's damaging you in a competitive term, that may, that is, may not be substantial less in competition in a market. And that market might be a town, it might be a state, it might be Australia, it might be the world. Yeah. What the market is. So it's, it's a very high bar. And that's why, to some extent, the Commission has realised that, that misuse of market power doesn't work all that well, except in the most unusual circumstance. So you need unfair, un, unfair practices where yeah. someone, you know, just not necessarily with market power, but someone is just doing, un, it's unfair. What's unfair? Look, uh, the, there's no definition. But it's really what's what's commercially unacceptable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's where unfair contract terms has probably helped a lot. But um, but having a, a clearer definition of unfair practices would would also be um, more effective. Look, and unfair contract terms. I'll, I'll come back to that. But it's unbelievably important. There's a very recent case out of the federal court, brought by ASIC against against the Bank of Queensland. Yep. Now. That case has wiped all the Bank of Queensland's small business finance contracts. Mm. And, we, and we saw that um, when unfair contract terms came in, none of the banks had actually 
updated any of their loan agreements to um, bring in UCTs. Um, yeah. And unfortunately, the, the federal ombudsman at the time brought it to their attention and they very quickly acted. But um, that's why it's important to have an ombudsman. Yeah, and, and, and again, um, unfair, I mean, is a hard concept. But the courts are starting to basically say, well, look, have a look at the, the imbalance in, in, in sort of power. And, um, you know, it's, it, there's an unfair issue. And what, the, what they did in the Bank of... Queensland case, the court has said, look, there's got to be two contracts. There's going to be one that you can screw them to the heart's content, a contract with, say, BHP. Yeah. When it comes to a small business person, you have to have a different contract with different terms and they've got to be fair. Hmm. Whereas with BHP, they can be unfair as you like. Yep. Yep. I understand. So we've got quite a few questions from members, which is great. Um, the first one was, um, what are your views on directors' guarantees? Ooh. My personal view is don't. <laughs> yep. Don't. It can be hard and to get that. At times, you may have to balance the, your commercial needs, etc. But my 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 personal view is don't. Yep. But often it's a non-negotiable. Yeah. Again, it's, look, everything's negotiable in the commercial world. Uh, but I've got one case now, which is a rather messy case with a with a member um, uh, having a fight over over a product. But he but, and there's two contracts. There's the contract for the supply of the of the product, and there's the, there's a finance contract. And the finance contract involves a director's guarantee, and you know that's going to be hard to get out of. Yeah. Yeah, no, not impossible, but but difficult. But difficult. So we've got another one here. In some cases, news agents haven't signed a contract in many years. It's um, but the supplier states if you accept supply, that accepting terms and conditions therefore as good as a signed contract. Is this the case? Yeah. Yes. And that's where you really have to think. Well, if I need a written contract um, in that case because. You know, what are the terms and conditions? Are they the ones that you initially signed up for or have they changed them? Yep. So that's where you may need a written contract. Again, depends upon the person and whether you trust them, whether you have some, whether you have some dealings with them, particularly in, say, a small town. You may have a good relationship with your landlord, say. Huh? Um, but in other cases, you know, make sure things are tied down. But yeah, if if you're if you simply act as if the contract's still ongoing, well, yeah, there's still a contract. Yep. Um, there's another one here asking, um, in your experience, has any um, member that you've dealt with been successful in in changing terms in large franchise agreements? Um, it's a hard one because they normally. Elna, well, yes, we have, but, but normally Elna looks yeah. at them in a collective way with the bigger franchises, franchisors, and then it gets some change. Look, I've had, I've, I've changed one in uh, some quite dramatically actually in small franchises, but the bigger ones they really go through Elna and Eldon. Then I have put in put to Ben, um, and then uh, yeah, uh, yeah, and. 
the, and yeah. We, yeah, there are changes, but you know, there's also there's changes in changes. There's important changes, and then there's fundamental changes. And the fundamental changes, I think, the the franchise all normally digs in. Yeah, I mean, I've seen a few members get some very minor um, things. Um, and obviously, when we review them, um, we give a lot of detailed feedback. Um, obviously, the you know we um, collectively bargain sometimes on some of those terms, um, but it's a fairly one-sided affair, as we all know. So it's um, it, but it's really important the work that you do to look at those contracts and to advise members on you know what they're actually signing. So I've got a few more questions. Um, uh, is a landlord charging variable outgoings cost shifting? Why or why not? Um, yeah, it is cost shifting, in my view. Uh, I'm I'm not aware of any case where that's been successful yet, but at the end of the pandemic, there might be some cases where that'll be run and it might be successful. Yep, but it is cost shifting. But by the way. I'm not aware of any case where where the cost shifting arguments won, but I think uh, cases will come up, and I, I think the cost shifting argument will be successful because it's it's just cost shifting. I suppose the problem part of the problem is the whole world is cost shifting. Yeah. State governments cost shift to the federal, local to the state. Cost shifting is part of our society, and a lot of it's damn unfair. But um, in a franchise agreement, which gets down to more reality for elder members, yeah, some of the cost shifting I see, I think is unfair. Yeah. But you may not want to challenge it because you know, it may undermine your whole franchise agreement. Yeah. You may lose it. Yeah. And look, I mean, obviously, um, you know, um, our, our members try to shift costs to their um, customers where they can as well, but it's um, that becomes more difficult if you're... Um, your prices are set, um, so you have you know, limited uh, limited capacity to do so. Cost shifting to customers is very hard. Hmm. Uh, and competitive landscape depends upon you know you might some might can do it, but if your main competitor is um, also you, you're a supplier, in many cases, cost shifting is almost impossible. That's right, the consumer because they're they're supplying the consumer. Yep. Let's check if we've got any more. Um, there was a question about if you can't negotiate changes to to a contract, um, is that unconscionable that you can't do that, or is it just hard bargaining? I suppose is the question. It's hard bargaining because the, the 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 contract, the say person who's offering the contract doesn't have to deal with you. There's no law that says you must deal with everyone. They just say, well, okay, there's the terms. Um, you know. This is where collective bargaining often comes in, where the trade association or a group of traders then get together and sort of try to do a better deal uh, with the supplier. Um, it may be unconscionable in certain circumstances, but it'd be pretty rare, pretty rare. Yeah. It's almost where, where, the, where the product is so, so important and what you're seeking to negotiate is pre also pretty important. Uh, and, and it's like... A, if if there's no change, it means it's it's not you know, it's there's no profit in the in the contract at all. But you 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 need the product; you have to have it. That may be unconscionable. 
Okay. Now I know we're on time. I've got a couple more questions. Are you happy just to keep going yeah. with a couple more? Sure. Um, so another question was, um, can I get out of a contract if I think the other party has misrepresented or didn't disclose all of the relevant information about the contract um, to them before signing or is it buy beware? No, um, it's, it's certainly a cause of action uh, to try and get out of it. My only comment was, uh, you know, it's not going to be by agreement. Mm. The other side probably won't say, oh, sure, you, you can walk away. So it'll be a fight. Yeah. But, you know, fights often may be worth having and depends the amount of money because in most jurisdictions, you can go to whether depending QCAT or NCAT or ACAT or VCAT, uh, where it's fairly low cost way of having a dispute um, sort of resolved or, or adjudicated. So it's certainly, it's, it's worth a fight in many cases. But if you then, if it's worth a lot of money and you have to end up in the state Supreme Court, yeah, well, good luck. Yeah, that was actually going to be one of my um, final questions was around QCAT and VCAT and so on. I mean, obviously, there are mediation services often available is, um, you know, with VCAT and QCAT, do you need a lawyer to represent you or um, no. you simply take your issue there? Um, what does it cost um, roughly? Um, What's your experience of that? Look, I've had a fair bit ex experience both on a personal basis um, in in those bodies. I mean, I've taken a fair few cases here in Canberra against uh, involving ACAT, and they've all been settled. I I've recently had a major case in Sydney involving travel agents in NCAT, which after four hearings, two hearings and two appeals, with one, I acted in initially. And then I got the agent to act for herself with me in the background. But QCAT or ACAT or whatever you call it, NCAT, depending, they vary from state to state how formal they are. But in all cases, they're pretty informal. There's no costs uh, unless your own costs and you use a lawyer, well, then you're up for those costs, but you're not up for the other side's costs. And the important issue, very soon after you take action, and the forms are, are pretty simple, they will very soon after that call call for mediation. And that's where most of those issues are then resolved. Invariably on a compromise, but that's that's probably better than, than having a, a long thought out case. Um, and, and the costs are low. There's a filing fee and it varies from state to state or territory to territory. But so, you know, it's... It's in the tens of dollars or yeah. 150 in some cases. Um, yeah, the, the only issue with those agencies, ACAT, QCAT, is there's a monetary limit on how much you can you can claim. And in, in most jurisdictions, uh, it is 25,000. Right, okay. Yep. But it's pretty easy going. You can easily do it yourself. I mean, if, if, if you can run a news agency, you, you, you can do a QCAT or NCAT case. Absolutely. And I suppose that's another question I had is, is before you, you know, have to go to, to those lengths, I suppose one of the issues we run into um, with members and with you is that often when they raise an issue with one of our team um, and we bring it to you, it's often so late in the piece 
you yeah. know the issues already already blowing up and and it sort of begs the question you know like like can a lot of things be resolved if you get onto them early and you know you communicate clearly with the other party and you can come to an agreement because i mean we look at the sort of the you know the qcap vcap model and mediation that occurs often the same outcome could probably be achieved by just getting onto the issue early instead of putting your head in the sand and finding a reasonable solution. What are your thoughts? Look, I think that's, I was going to raise it anyway as a, as a passing comment, in, in comment. Look, I do, we do get most, when we do get involved or Eleanor gets involved, invariably it's, it's late in the piece and makes it harder um people then get set in their ways or set in their views once there is a dispute it's best to try and and resolve and talk to the parties talk to Eleanor, talk to me very early and see what can be done because in many cases most businesses do not want to fight even the you know the most the, the most aggressive franchisor or supplier they don't want to fight no. Also, I don't want to concede because involved in any commercial matter are human beings and they get on their high horse and they get they have a view that you've done the wrong thing or whatever. But in many cases, they will settle on a compromise and they think they've won. Uh, but, but when it gets down the track, it, it starts to involve debt collectors starts to involve lawyers, this is on the other side, uh, it gets messy and then yeah. gets harder and everyone sort of says, well, I've expended some time and money. I need my, I need to be paid for that. Yeah, I've got to dig my heels in now. Yeah. 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 And, no, I think I think that's right. And, and probably, actually, I've got one last question, which I think relates to this. And it's, it, it was, you know, if I breach a contract, what should I do? Um, and I think this is the issue is that often something will occur and they don't know what to do and they'll kind of you know procrastinate on it and that's where those other costs start to to feed in and the issue becomes bigger but if you breach a contract it depends what the breach is i mean most cases well, do nothing yeah do nothing if you want the contract to continue sure you've done breach but unless the other side raises with you do nothing um but once the other side raises with you, then you have to think whether, well, in many cases, it'll be raised on the basis, look, can you fix it? Can you fix whatever's yep. But if you can't fix it, well, then you may get into a dispute and into uh, termination clauses and all kinds of things. And that's where you, you really need to see if that can be resolved early or seek advice. Don't let it, don't let it fester. Okay, no, that's good. I've got one very last question because we better wrap up. If a contract was signed pre-COVID and spe specified a value of sales, should that be able to be renegotiated with effect of COVID on businesses? I really don't know the answer to that um, because I think, so you cannot really argue that that term was unfair at the time it was entered into might be unfair now it's one where i would certainly try to to negotiate uh, and of course um but all, all the states and territories did pass legislation to try and 
to give a bit of help for uh, for tenants and and some moratoriums uh, but uh, I think the answer to this is that issue is going to come up uh, pretty starkly in coming months uh, yeah I think it is too I mean I would argue if I was arguing on behalf of, of a client that um, it's it's simply unconscionable to 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 rely on the previous value yeah yeah uh, because it's, and you can't say well you know it's fair enough you sign the contract but something came up that was it, it's not either's fault right so you can say well it's unconscionable for one party to to, to keep to, to, to hang on to the previous evaluation um see there's another thing briefly and i don't want to complicate people in the law there's a thing called the frustrated contracts act uh which i hadn't heard of until couple of years ago but where when something like a pandemic comes up the contracts can simply be set aside so is this like we used to have force majeure um clauses in a lot of contracts but they've been sort of pushed to one side is that the same or not a little bit i mean there's the the, the frustrated contracts act operates not everywhere but operates in new south wales victoria and south australia and it basically says if Something happens like the pandemic, which is not either's fault, the contract can be set aside. Right? And also says, well, but there can be a little bit of compensation uh, if, if someone has spent a bit of money, but it's got to be reasonable uh, compensation. Assuming someone's paid money, um, then they can get some of that back, but not a lot. But the issue is the contract can be set aside. Yeah, okay. And uh, and, oh, and is I'll have to pick your brain a little bit more about that maybe for an article well, in the newsletter. That's um, an interesting. My travel agency case, which I my travel agency case, which I did a article for for the channel, which has now since oh, yeah. ha, has been resolved, was all about that and the airlines and travel agents. It was it was argued by a consumer that the contract was frustrated and the travel agent then had to compensate. The consumer, yep. Travel agent saying, "Well, I don't have the money. The money went straight to the airline." Mm. But NCAT twice said, "No, no, the travel agents got to pay," which is grossly unfair. Anyway, we finally we appealed twice. Anyway, the final outcome is that the travel agent doesn't have to pay, uh, but uh, but probably the airlines do. But unfortunately, this consumer didn't take action against the airline. Only to act against a travel agent. Of course. Hmm? Yeah. But it was, and it's potentially with travel agents, it's potentially, it kills them. Oh, totally. Yeah. Because they don't have the money. Massive issue. Yep. No, of course they don't. Okay, that's been really good. Um, I hope everybody got a lot out of it. I certainly learned a few things and um, be keen to get you on again sometime in a couple of months, Hank, and um, talk about a few other issues if you wouldn't mind. Sure. Um, to everybody that's joined us, thanks for um, taking your time out of your day and please stay safe, especially everybody in New South Wales and Victoria right now. And, uh, and Canberra. And Canberra, sorry, don't forget ACT. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks, Hank, it's been terrific and I'll look forward to doing this again. Okay, right. Thanks and all the best to everyone.